If you have your Bibles, and I see one of your members down front, Sister Barbara, who served for years on several of our committees, the Andrews University Board, Seminary Executive Committee, and uh, we served together several years ago on an A-team, I think it was, that was tasked with a special responsibility there at the university. And she chairs one of our subcommittees on the board, and we really appreciate her service these many years and her love and support. Good to see you in the house. Wow. Amen. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, reading from verse 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him, that he might receive his sight. Verse 13, Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had strengthened me, he was strengthened. And when he had received me, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God of God. The title of our sermon tonight is, This is My Story. This is My Story. Father, speak to us tonight. Exhort and inspire us, we pray. Amen. I was born in Tarsus, a university 
city of Cilicia, known for its culture and stoic teaching. Though I was a freeborn Roman citizen, I was also a Jew. I was descended from Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin, and I was circumcised on the eighth day. My father was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. He was a strict Pharisee who was required to make sure that I was circumcised, that I was taught the law, and that I learned a trade. My father succeeded in all three respects. I was raised strictly after the manner of the Jews. I attended the synagogue school and I learned with devotion and brilliance all that was expected of me as a student of the scriptures and the law of the fathers. I was exposed to Greek philosophy and I was schooled by a top-notch rabbinical thinker named Gamaliel. And I was such an excellent student that I became an expert in the law. I guess you can say that what I lacked physically, I made up for intellectually. In fact, in Judaism, I advanced well beyond many who were much older than me. I could embarrass older and more educated persons with my biting sarcasm and my incisive reasoning and my eloquent speech. If a vote for most likely to succeed had been taken, while I was a student of Judaism and Greek philosophy, I would have won it hands down. As a Pharisee, I was blameless as to touching the righteousness which is of the law. I earned a seat on the Sanhedrin, and I was usually present when Christians were brought before that important religious body. I always voted against the Christians, and I was present when young Stephen was stoned to death. Now, early in my professional life, I became a persecutor of the infant Christian church. In Christianity, this new religion, I found that which was repugnant and repulsive, and I wanted to stamp out the new religious heresy more than anything else. And so I became an unrelenting persecutor who hounded down Christians, all of whom I hated with a passion. I would go to any and all lengths to find these people, and I expended all my energies in making sure that they were harassed, if not executed. I used to go from house to house, dragging out the Christians and putting them into prison. 
Now the audacious claims on the part of these unlearned peasants of Galilee, that's what they were, unlearned peasants of Galilee, particularly the claims of a crucified and risen Messiah, were contrary to the Jewish teaching and rabbinical studies I had received. Like other Pharisees, I too looked for a promised Messiah but not one who would die as a felon on a cross. I expected that God's anointed one would come in all of his glory as a king. The blasphemous heresy about a crucified and a risen Christ was more than incredulous. It had to be exterminated and uprooted and destroyed. And so blinded by my prejudice, I concluded that it was the will of God that I should oppose these peasants and pursue to death all who followed and believed this heresy. Destroying Christians became the supreme passion of my life. I must admit it though, I am honest with myself, that when Stephen was brought before the council, I was touched by his faith. Something about that man spoke to me. I saw evidences of God's presence in his life. Ah, shall I say that the Spirit of God must have worked a bit on my heart? I don't know. I would never admit it. Whatever it was that pricked my conscience, I decided to go against it. And so I quieted, I hushed the voice of conscience. And then it happened. What happened? Well, hearing that Damascus was becoming a Christian asylum for the Nazarene fugitives, I sought and gained permission from the high priest to go to Damascus. Opposition had caused the believers to flee to many places, including Damascus. Now, when I started out for Damascus, the cause of Christianity never looked more bleak. You can imagine how the Christians must have trembled on receiving word that their fierce antagonist was on his way to destroy them. But as they say, man proposes, but God disposes. And so on my way to Damascus, on my way to Damascus, on the last day of my journey, with Damascus in sight, with Damascus in sight, I was startled by this bright light, this bright light that literally knocked me off my high horse. Even though it was around midday, this light was brighter than the sun and it blinded me. I could not see a thing. Luckily, though I could not see, I still could hear. And so I heard this voice, this mysterious voice. And somehow I recognized the voice as belonging to Jesus Christ. So, so, the voice said, why do you persecute me? Blinded and bewildered, I immediately 
immediately shot back, Who are you, Lord? To which the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Then the voice commanded me to go into the city and to wait there until I was told what to do. Now that encounter, that encounter, that encounter was so sudden and dramatic and devastating. I actually saw the crucified and risen Christ in that vision. And it was to this visible presence that I would afterward bear witness. I saw Jesus as Stephen had seen him when Stephen said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. When I heard those words from Stephen, I thought Stephen was just being blasphemous. But when I met, when I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, I learned otherwise. What a revelation. What a revelation. I realized that the priests back in Jerusalem were fabricators. I realized that the, the crucifixion, the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus had been foretold. I realized that what Jesus had said about himself had been foretold. I realized that Jesus was whom he had claimed to be. I realized that Jesus was truth without a doubt. I knew that it was Jesus of Nazareth that I encountered on that road. I guess you can say that if God could save a person like Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor and blasphemer, nobody need despair of finding grace and of being saved. When I got off the ground, when I got off the ground, I still could not see. My traveling companions had to lead me by the hand into Damascus. My entrance into Damascus was totally different from what I had planned and expected it to be. You see, it had been my plan to enter the city as the zealous persecutor of the followers of Jesus of Nazareth, and I had feared Damascus weighted down. I had neared Damascus weighted down with feelings of self-satisfaction, but after meeting the Lord himself, I entered Damascus humbled and humiliated and transformed. What a reversal. I started out for Damascus intending to make the Christians tremble. When I arrived in Damascus, I was the only one trembling. At first, I spent three days in seclusion, in self-examination, and in heart humiliation. For those three days, I ate and drank nothing. As I turned the flashlight inward, as I looked at my heart, I realized the error of my ways. The proud Pharisee in me gave way to the submissive servant. Right there and then, I decided to turn my life over to Jesus. After a while, I met a disciple named Ananias who stepped forward and declared that God had directed him to restore my sight. 
At first, Ananias was aghast by the admonition, admonition of God. Ananias didn't want to do what God told him to do. He balked. He could not believe his ears. He knew that I had been a persecutor of Christians. How could God use me? God must be crazy. I guess if there's a lesson in my transformation, it is that God can use anybody. Once Ananias got over his ambivalence, he baptized and anointed me in a manner of speaking, and I began to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. I preached about Jesus with the same intensity and passion with which I used to persecute the early Christians. As a former enemy of Christianity, I knew the ins and outs of the new religion. And as a former enemy of Christianity, I was infinitely more qualified to be one of its chief proponents. Everybody, Jew and Gentile alike, couldn't believe that I, a former antagonist, could now be a protagonist. In fact, the Jews in Damascus resisted me, so I went into the desert. There I sought God anew. There I repented again. There I, I, I searched the scriptures. There I desired to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. My desire to know Jesus and him crucified was matched by my desire to share Jesus Christ. You see, I just could not rest still knowing that people needed the Lord. Having experienced the difference between a living faith and a dead formalism, I went everywhere I could possibly travel preaching Jesus as the Savior of the world. I wanted people everywhere to know that Jesus died for their sins and that he would return to earth soon to redeem them, to take them home to heaven with him and to live forever. From the moment I pledged my allegiance to Christ, my life was characterized by planting churches and serving Jesus Christ. I wanted people everywhere to know that Jesus died for their sins. Now, Peter... Peter, who walked with Jesus, has been dubbed the apostle to the Jews. I guess you can call me the apostle to the Gentiles. As a Hebrew of Hebrews, I had a passion to win my own kinfolk to Christ, but the Jews rejected my witness, so I had to turn to the Gentiles. Is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles too? Barnabas and John Mark went with me first. Out we went to preach Christ to whoever would listen. I went from place to place, city to city, country to country, telling the story of the cross, getting people to commit to Jesus and planting churches. It was my ambition to preach the gospel everywhere Christ was not known. In all, I made three missionary journeys over a 10-year period covering an area of 8,100 miles. I labored in Seleucia and Cyprus and Pamphylia and Pisidia and Iconium and Ly 
Iconia. Then the coal came from Macedonia, and so into Europe I went. Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, and Rome were all covered. I firmly believe, I firmly believe that I had the gospel that would change the world, and I wanted people, Jew and Gentile alike, to be followers of me, even as I am also a follower of Christ. Now, how did I succeed? In planting churches in place after place, city after city, region after region? How did I do in my attempts to meet the learned and the wise folk of my day, the forerunners of the postmodernists? First of all, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel that I preached was not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. First and foremost, in my preaching, I emphasize the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross was and remains the center and content of all of my preaching and all of my teaching. If ever I were going to boast, it would be in the cross. It was not easy preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Jews, you see, the cross was a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it was foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Jews demanded miraculous signs. Greeks looked for wisdom. Yet I early realized that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. I believe that if the cross were to be lifted up more in people's witnessing, their efforts would be more successful. After all, Jesus Christ himself said, and I, if I be lifted up, would draw all men unto me. If sinners were only to be led to the cross, they would have a fuller revelation of the Savior. Without the cross, you see, we are nothing. I myself am a witness to the power of the cross. I'm a witness that the gospel transforms. My own conversion is proof that Jesus is mighty to save. Because I once canceled plans to travel to Rome, I was accused of being unsure of the gospel, but I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus Christ changed me. He even changed my name. I went from being called Saul to be named Paul. I'm a witness that Jesus saved. I'm a witness that there's power in the blood. I have been crucified with Christ and I no, no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God. I would give up everything to get to know Jesus Christ more and better. I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus the Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him. More than anything, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings 
becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. What I want to get across, what I want to emphasize, is that Jesus is everything to me. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. In taking the gospel to the world, in seeking to convince the learned and the wise, according to the world, of the love of God, I also kept it simple. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Please understand that that was not easy for me. Before my conversion, I aimed to impress with my oratorical and debating skills. Often it is believed that in seeking to convince others of the relevance of the cross, one must be erudite and scholarly. One must strive to be intellectual, not necessarily. When I came to the Corinthians, for example, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to the Corinthians in weakness and fear and with much trembling, my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that their faith might not rest on man's wisdom but on God's power. Now my companions and I did speak a message of wisdom among the mature but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age. No, we spoke of God's secret wisdom. A wisdom that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of the age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God has revealed it to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. The man without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. I'm happy to say that God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. You see, no eloquence of words, no force of argument can convert sinners. It is the power of God alone that can apply truth to the heart. Now in sharing Christ also, I used different strategies to reach different people groups. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means, I might save some. I do this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. In preaching the gospel in Corinth, for example, I followed a different course from what characterized my efforts in Athens. 
In Athens, I attempted to meet logic with logic, science with science, philosophy with philosophy. Athens, you see, was inhabited with people of intelligence and culture. There were statues of gods and deified heroes of history everywhere. Athenians believed in the unknown God. Magnificent architecture met the eye and grand poetry met the ear in Athens. I shifted my strategy in Corinth where I lifted up the cross more than anything else. On preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection in Athens, I was called a babbler. Some of my hearers sneered, some dismissed me, but some wanted to hear from me again. Thank God some believed. In Corinth, again, I used a different strategy. I addressed the Corinthians as people who were worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave them milk, not solid food, for they were not ready for solid food. I switched strategy. I worked at tent making and in so doing gained access to a people group I would not have encountered had I not done so. In an attempt to reach the Jews, I asked my companion and protege, Timothy, to be circumcised, not because circumcision was any longer required for salvation, but because of the principle that we must strive to be all things to all people in order to win them to Christ, sharing Christ's cause for a tact born of divine love. Incidentally, the mention of Timothy leads me to point out that sharing the good news requires partnership. No man, no woman is an island sufficient unto themselves. From the beginning of my ministry up to the end, I had companions. Everywhere I went just about, I had companions. Barnabas, John Mark, Silas, Timothy, Apollos, Titus, Demas. I could go on and on. In many instances, I labored alongside others, mentoring and encouraging them. In other instances, others followed me, watering what I had planted. We do not all possess the same gifts. Oh no, like in the human body, there's a diversity of gifts among the people of God. We work together for the glory of God. And in the case of growing the church, it is God who gives the increase. Now, as we share Christ, sharing Christ was and will always be a daunting task. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I have endured all kinds of hardship for the sake of the gospel. Incidentally, at my conversion, I was warned of the many things I would have to suffer for Christ's sake. And suffer I did. I have been physically assaulted, beaten, stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, driven from city to city. I can go on and on. I have experienced ingratitude, prejudice, and desertion. I have known anxiety and want through it all. However, I have learned that when I am weak, then am I strong. Truly, God's strength is made manifest in human weakness. Through it all, I have learned that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who are called 
according to his name. In other words, the things that happened to me, the imprisonment, etc., have really served to advance the gospel. You can say that I was in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. In a sense, I was often more effective while I was in prison than while I was a free man. Through it all, I have learned that if God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And so this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. I started out persecuting the church, but my conversion led me to become the greatest evangelist, perhaps, missionary. And I have had the most profound impact on Christianity other than Jesus Christ. This is my story. Not I, but Christ, be honored, love, exalted. This is my story, for to me, to live is Christ, and to live is gain. This is my story, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, I press forward. This is my story, I fought a good fight, I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. This is my story. And the question tonight is, what's your story? What is your story? Each and every one of us is a story. And the greatest form of evangelistic witnessing is simply to share our story. What's your story? Tell me a story. Better yet, Tell me your story. Share your story. And others will be led to Jesus Christ. And please don't 
discount or downgrade your story. Your story is as powerful as that of Paul, who was Saul, or anybody else in this auditorium tonight. You have a unique story. Share it. Tell it. You want to win people to Christ? Let's just tell our story. Let the world know what the Lord has done for you and what he means to you. What's your story? Tell me a story. Better yet, tell me your story. If you love the Lord tonight and you want to share your story, just rise to your feet with me wherever you are. A few years ago, a member of one of my former churches gave me a book entitled Tell to Win. Tell to Win. Written by some business professors, and the thesis of the book was that Businesses without a story to tell will fail. We can extrapolate from that churches without a story and people without a story will fail. We must tell to win. So I want to encourage you tonight to share your story, to tell your story, so that somebody may come to know Jesus Christ as you do know him. Father God, we thank you that Jesus himself taught via stories. And we th th thank you that the gospel in its essence is a story. The greatest story ever told. Thank you for the story of Saul who became Paul and who because of his story was able to plant churches all over this great earth. We thank you, O oh God, that we have a story, that each and every one of us is a story. May we share our story so that others may come to know you as we know you. May we share the greatest story ever told, and we look forward to that day when Christ will come, and another chapter in our story will begin, one that will last throughout eternity and never come to an end. Thank you, Father. Thank you for making us part of your ongoing love story. Thank you. We praise you. World without end. In the wonderful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, let all God's people say, Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.